Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. For more information about our church, visit EdenWorshipCenter.co. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Join us now as we study through the gospel of Mark, the first of the New Testament gospels to be written. Our prayer is that as you follow along in your Bible, the gospel will come alive in your heart and you will see Jesus more clearly. Well, open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 11. We have a lot of ground I want to cover this morning, so we're going to jump in as quickly as possible. Mark chapter 11. And can I just make a little disclaimer for some of you who thought about uh, bolting in the middle of our worship time. Uh, we did a uh, hymn of the church that is a couple hundred years old uh, that had been redone and reclaimed by a certain worship team that's out there whose uh, theology that they espouse as a church I am deeply set against, and so we try not to do any of their music. Uh, except they had one word in that song that I didn't like, so I changed it back to the original. So we didn't do their version. We did the original hymn this morning. Amen. Good. Okay. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, God bless you. Stay right there. Okay. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Mark 11, verse 11 through 25. And the title of the sermon is No Fruit. So just to to start things off, to point us in the right direction, I I think we could file this under. This isn't exactly what I had in mind. Uh, There's a story of, in the mid-1500s, these Franciscan monks, uh, and it's part of the internal Catholic response and reform to the Protestant Reformation as they they sought to reform the Church of Rome. Uh, They sent out missionaries all over the world, and these Franciscan monks uh, went to uh, the New World, and, and so they, they came across. They were in Mexico and South America, and some, some by preaching and some by coercion, trying to make Christians out of these uh, Indians. And one of them, and most of you are familiar with his name, uh, the Spanish conquistador Cortez. Uh, you may remember him from school. He was part of this uh, movement to try and reclaim this New World, uh, and they were claiming the wealth, but they were also trying to make converts of these Indians. And so as he's leaving, as he's getting on the boat, he gives these very specific, strict instructions to one of these towns, uh, to the natives who live there, uh, that they were to worship the Christian God and care for one of his horses that he was leaving behind because it was lame. And the natives faithfully obeyed. They fed the horse with fruit and flowers until the day it died. Unfortunately, a couple Franciscan monks returned a few years later to check on this same tribe. And when they got there, they found this horse had died a long time ago. But the people in the village had built a statue of this horse because they had no distinction in their mind between worship the Christian God and take care of my horse. They thought they were the same thing. And so they had the statue of this horse in the middle of town, which they worshiped, and they were calling our God of thunder and lightning. This is missing the point entirely. And this is what Jesus steps into in the midst of the temple where we're going to find him today as God has given very specific instructions in how he is to be worshipped. And Jesus steps into the center of that worship and he looks around and he says, this is not what we had in mind. So stand with me. Let's read Mark chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 11. 
By the way, it, the words are going to be on the screen, but if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's some Bibles back in the back. Would you grab one of those? If you don't have one, take it home with you. That's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word in your hand. Men and women have died that you can have this Bible. And so we stand week after week to honor the Word of God. Read with me in Mark chapter 11, beginning verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, that's to the tree, by the way, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20 says, as they passed by in the morning, that's the next morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he has says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. For if you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Lord, would you bless the reading of your word? God, would you not just let us hear these words from the page? I pray that our hearts would be open to hear living words, living words that call us out of dead, archaic forms which are no longer fulfilling the purpose into a life-giving, relational trust in the living Christ. Let our hope be in him and him alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So there's a lot of Bible commentators out there who would rather that this passage not be listed in the gospel narrative because it's strange. It's confusing. Jesus ends up talking to a tree at one point, and it's sort of this mixed message trying to understand what's happening. In fact, this is the only destructive miracle in all of Jesus' ministry. Everything else is life-giving. Everything else is bringing health and wholeness and freedom. And here we see destruction come from the lips of the Savior. Well, speaking to that confusion, the very first known commentary that we have on the Gospel of Mark, it was written all the way back in the 5th century by a guy named Victor of Antioch, already understood that the tree is symbolic of the temple. 
This entire confusing thing that is happening with this fig tree over here is a living parable of what's going on in the temple. In fact, he describes it as sort of a sandwich where you you take this and this and you squish it in the middle and they're they're all speaking of the same thing. So as we go through this this morning, we're going to speak of this tree and the temple as if they are one. As if Jesus is doing the same thing, because I I believe that's what he's doing. So look back with me in verse 11. We're going to just work our way through these verses. It says, he entered Jerusalem. Now, now this is tied to the triumphal entry where he comes into town and we're expecting this large fanfare as the Messiah enters his temple. But it comes off really anticlimactic because I think it's tied to the next day's events. It says, he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the following day, he came from Bethany and he was hungry And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him talking to a tree. So on the following day, Mark Mark uses this word, on the following day. It's literally the only time in the Gospel of Mark that he uses this phrase. Usually, Mark isn't interested in chronology. He, he doesn't care if we get all the events in the right order. He's telling us a story about who Jesus is. So we don't, we don't see a lot of, and three days later, and six days later, in fact, help me out, what is Mark's favorite word in talking about time and how things work with Jesus? Immediately, right? He does this, and immediately he went here. He, he's not actually saying that Jesus uh, never slept a single time in his whole three-year ministry. That he's trying to give us movement through the gospel except this one time where he says, this time it's really specific. This is the next day. He's intentionally, and it's the only time he does it in this gospel, he is tying, this fig tree is tied to what he saw in the temple. And then he's going to go straight back to the temple. So don't be, don't be thrown off. Don't be confused. Because if you look, look at your Bible, uh, in verse 11 and then to verse 12, there's a break in there for most of you in, in your Bible. Uh, verse 11, and then there, there's a little bit of a break. There's a header in there uh, that might say something like Jesus cleanses the temple or Jesus with the fig tree, and then verse 12. So our chapters weren't actually added into these books until about the 13th century. They were added so that we could navigate better uh, through the Bible, find our way through. And it wasn't until the 16th century that verses were added into the Bible. So chapters and verses are not sacred scripture. They help us navigate sacred scripture. Are you tracking with me? In other words, chapters and verses are really helpful except when they're not. Except when they separate things that should be together, okay? So he's staying in Bethany. It's just under two miles to the east, just outside of Jerusalem. And he's staying with Lazarus. He's staying with Mary and Martha, this family that he's really close to. And the next morning, they're walking back. Now, just think about this for a second. The last time you went to something like a, a conference, some sort of gathering, if your hotel was two miles away from the main event, you'd be like, oh, that's not bad. Unless you were walking, then you're like, this is the worst. I am never using Expedia again. Uh, this has, this is, it, that's what Jesus is doing. Every night and every morning, they're walking two miles back and forth. And on that walk, Jesus is hungry. 
It seems like a really simple thing, except if you're painting a picture of Jesus as Messiah, if you're painting a picture as Jesus, as supreme, ruling God, most religions who, who are painting myths don't paint their myths with human frailty. So you're not allowed to think of people like the prophet Muhammad having anything ever frail about them. And yet Jesus here is clearly displayed in his humanity that he was just hungry. Now, I want to make an important distinction because he's hungry and then the next thing you know he's yelling at a tree, okay? So to use our modern terminology, Jesus was not hangry, all right? Some of you have been there before. Uh, Some of you have experienced that on long car rides with someone in your car where the emotions that get stirred up by our human frailty lead to poor responses. That's not what's going on with Jesus. He seems overly bent out of shape about this tree, doesn't he? Like he walks over to a fig tree, he doesn't find figs on it, and so he curses it. If you went around cursing everything, like you go to a McDonald's and they say, we're out of this, and you curse it. May no one ever eat from this place again. May tomorrow this place be burned down. We're like, you have a problem. You should see somebody, right? Uh, That's not what's going on with Jesus. This isn't holy road rage. But it's confusing because Mark actually tells us it wasn't the season for figs. And so Jesus goes expecting to find figs, and Mark goes, but it's not the season for figs. So we're like, Jesus, why are you looking? Are, are you just trying to prove a point? Well, not really. Now, I, I, uh, I grew up in Topeka. Uh, we live in Shipshawana. It's a pretty rural area. Uh, I never was in 4-H like many of you. Uh, I have planted certain things in my backyard. Some have lived and some have died. I don't know why, okay? (laughs) So I'm not claiming to be some expert on horticulture or fig trees. I will tell you what I read, though. And that is in Israel, the fig harvest is somewhere around October. Uh, they, They become fully ripened at different times over the summer. And by October, the harvest is over. Really soon after that, these fig trees will, they lose all of their leaves and then they sprout these buds, which are the figs that are going to grow, except they're just these tiny buds and they stick all winter. So all winter, they already have fig buds on them and they have no leaves. Coming in sometime, usually in March, these buds start to swell up and they become these unripened figs. And then in April, which by the way is when Passover is, that, that's why Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, uh, they start to get leaves on them. So if you see leaves on a fig tree, it would tell you that it already had unripened figs on it. Now, they may not be completely ready, but they're still edible. Are you tracking with me? So if Jesus sees a tree that is completely in leaf, he makes the assumption there are figs on this tree. Are you with me? So it's not that these things don't exist. It's also not that Jesus was incorrect. This happened to prove a point. There's a rather intentional thing that Jesus is doing. From a distance, man, this is, this is really important. From a distance, the tree looked really healthy. From a distance, it looked really fruitful because the leaves kind of hide the fruit. And isn't that the way it is with our life? We have so many good things, so many spiritual things going on, and we look like we're healthy. We look like we're happy. We look like we are spiritually flourishing. And yet there's a chance beneath that there's no fruit. And there's many 
alleged Christians who are covered with leaves of self-righteousness. Not, not a righteousness that we're drawing from dependence upon Christ, but good things that I am doing. By the way, uh, I hope that we are doing what the Bible commands, that he has prepared for us good works for his glory, that we're doing those things. But if our hope and our trust is in those things, then all it takes is one really bad work, and all of my good has been undone, and, and I am hopeless. That's why our hope is in Christ alone. But there's so many Christians who don't have that hope in Christ alone. They're hoping in their own self-righteousness. And upon closer inspection, there's no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. There's no evidence of growth or even a desire for growth in the knowledge of God, in walk in holiness or in obedience to His Word. And I think we want to be really, really careful about how we identify those trees. That God's call is to repentance for all people, right? Uh, Jesus doesn't go around cursing every tree. This tree was indicative of temple worship, right? So here's where the analogy needs to stop because Jesus doesn't come to you and see a lack of fruitfulness and curse you and walk away. Jesus comes to his people and he sees the self-righteousness. I think I'm right in my own eyes. He, he sees a lack of true, genuine fruit of the Spirit and he calls us to repent, he calls us in love to turn to him. He does all this in the disciples' hearing. Jesus curses the tree. Now, if I'm going to yell at a tree, I'm going to try and do it when my family's not around, right? If I'm going to look dumb, right, you're just hoping nobody's putting this on YouTube. Except that's not what's happening with Jesus. This is an intentional teaching that he is doing with his disciples. He is saying, never again put your trust in man-made faithfulness. And things that look good because they're man-centered attempts to be justified and right before God. That's entirely the purpose of the temple. And so they move straight from this cursing of the tree, verse 15, into the temple. And they came to Jerusalem. And he enters the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Straight from the tree that is dead and fruitless, into turning over everything. Remember we said last week that Jesus' clearing of the temple was not a, a moment of holy, righteous anger. This was a premeditated act as he looked around. Verse 16 says, He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. First the disciples hear him curse the tree, and now the scribes and the Pharisees hear him curse the temple. And so they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So let's, let's look just a little bit at some of the purpose, some of the problems with the temple. The temple was actually a magnificent structure. It was built uh, over a few generations. Uh, and you, you see here, that this is a model. The temple no longer exists. The only thing that exists is the wall that was the most western wall of it, which now the Jews call the Wailing Wall. Uh, so it, it was this huge sort of rectangleish square that covered 35 acres. Now, y'all are farmers, right, in, in this area. We, we know what 35 acres looks like. It's amazing 
in Mark 13, Jesus is going to walk out of the temple with his disciples. They've seen it. And they're still going to look around and go, Jesus, this place is crazy. This is nuts. Look at these stones. Look at these pillars. And Jesus is going to say this temple is going to come down. Uh, 35 acres. Let me give you just a rough estimate of that. Uh, imagine taking a football field. Anybody ever gone to like a high school football game before? And you're, you're walking in, and sometimes you have to walk around the field. It's kind of a long walk. Uh, 35 acres would be uh, roughly 31.5 football fields put together. So about five football fields long by about six football fields wide. Uh, imagine having to walk around that. This is a giant thing placed in the middle of the city, and it's still under construction in Jesus' time. It's not going to get finished until about 30 years later. So outside that ring you see is called the Court of the Gentiles, all, all that big open space, Court of the Gentiles. And Josephus, who's an early Jewish historian, describes uh, this portico that goes around it and those pillars that, that look tiny on that little screen. Uh, it, Josephus, who, who was an eyewitness, he was there, he lived during Jesus' time, said they were big enough that three men would join hands to reach around one pillar. Uh, this whole thing was massive. It, it was just absolutely breathtaking. Only that court of the Gentiles, that whole outside area, when Jesus goes in, is taken over by those who are selling animals. Those who are selling sacrifices of sheep and oxen and birds and pigeons get mentioned here. And uh, money changers, because you can't, you can't buy these sacrifices with Roman money. That would, be, uh, that would be unholy in the Jewish temple. So you have to change it for temple money. And it, people who were selling wine and oil for these sacrifices. And imagine that that whole outside court looks like Shipshawana's flea market. Right, so if you could just superimpose that into the midst of that, and here's the problem, that's where the Gentiles could worship and no place else. They weren't allowed on the inside. In fact, if you go to the next one, there's a picture of that inside thing. There was another wall inside of it that separated the court of the women. So if you were a Jewish woman, you could go through the court of the Gentiles, uh, through this doorway, which by the way, the doorway had a sign over top that said roughly, if you are a Gentile and you go through this door, and they, by the way, in archaeology have found one of these signs, which is kind of awesome. Uh, you are bringing death on your own head and it's your fault. Imagine every time you came to church outside one of the doors was a sign that says, if you come in this particular door where you're excluded, we will kill you. Just welcoming, right? This part wasn't part of the seeker-sensitive movement in the church. So the Jewish women could go past that into the women's court, which was inside of there. But then they had their own columns, and they could look through the columns but not go through them because the next court was the court of men the court of Israel, and only Jewish men could go there. So you have these layers of exclusion, and then past that was the court of the priests. So if you were a Jewish man, you could go this far, but you can't go into the court of the priests because that was the altar was there, and then that big enclosure behind it is the Holy of Holies. And even the priests can't go in there, only the one who goes in once a year to make the sacrifices. One commentator described how in this massive structure of the temple, people would use the court of the Gentiles from one gate to the other as a shortcut from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. So now imagine Shipshawana's flea market with a road path of people walking, trafficking through the midst of what's already chaos where it's the only place that the Gentiles have to worship God. And by the way, 
this temple was the only place where you could worship God. All the sacrifices had to be done here or they're an abomination. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, these references to an a unrighteous king comes and the good king comes after him and he tears down the high places. Those high places where they said, look, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to make the sacrifices. Let's just do it here. Don't go to Jerusalem. We live in Shipshawana. Let's, let's build a mini altar here in Shipshawana. And they would tear those down. You had to come here, and now the Gentiles can't even get there. James Edwards, in his commentary, says, Mark portrays the clearing of the temple not as its restoration, not as its cleansing, but of its disillusion. Jesus isn't going to say, let's make this temple better. Let's make this temple work right. He is saying, this is done. This is finished. In fact, Mark is the only gospel writer who points us to this clear call that this is for all nations. That My house is to be a house of prayer. Jesus isn't taking ownership of his house. He's speaking in the voice of the prophet who was speaking for God, saying God's house is to be a house of prayer, not just for the Jewish people, but for all nations. And see, the, the Gentile court had been taken over because all these sacrifices, there's archaeology on the Mount of Olives where they found uh, remnants that all these sacrifices used to be kept there. That was like quarter to a half mile away. Why do that when you have this giant court of the Gentiles? Let's use that. It's closer. So it had been moved in and taken over. And so the nations were actually being pushed out of worshiping God. That word nation in Greek is ethnosin. Man, that almost sounds familiar, doesn't it? Like it? I just went to the doctor and I had to fill out a form, and it, one of the things it asked was my ethnicity. It, it's where, where am I from? Where, where are my people from? That it's not just that God has made his worship to be for Americans and British people and people from Germany and people from France. Those aren't the nations. It's for ethnic groups. All of these people groups among the earth, that every single one of them that God is calling to worship him. And you find this scattered throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 56 verse 7 says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. That God's design from the beginning was not just to create a Jewish nation but a worldwide nation of all people. People. Guys, this is so important because most of us uh, growing up living in Indiana, we're, we're, not, we're not really thinking, well, we're the Jewish people. Everyone else is different from us. Uh, and yet we do that when we come to church where we go, well, we're the, we're the Christian people and everyone else is excluded. And then we, we shrink that ring again. We go, well, we're the, we're the EWC people and all the other churches are not quite as good. Unless, of course, you get slightly ticked off with something here, and then the other ones look super good, right? <laughs> because it's so easy for us to slip into this pattern. It's just us. It's just about us. It's just about what God wants to do with you, and God's heart is for the nations. And as soon as we lose sight of that, we have lost sight of the purpose of the gospel. This blessing of salvation and communion with God was for all people but the temple was not fulfilling that. In fact, it became a place of division and restrictions, and it was failing. Because that kind of communion would only be accomplished 
in Christ, in his church. Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says this. This is, by the way, what it looks like. That's what it looked like in the temple. Here's what it looks like in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. The wall has come down. The warning signs are gone. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs to the promise. Abraham's offspring is what gave them entrance into the court of Israel. And in Christ, we have all been added into that. It means there's no restrictions anymore that anyone has to stand at a distance. Now, the scripture is not saying an undoing, a God-created order. Okay, If you look at the meta-narrative, the, the big picture Old Testament and New Testament, it affirms that God gave distinctive roles to people. All right? So we're not saying uh, between male and female, there's no difference. That makes zero sense at all. God has made our wives much different from us, guys. In fact, many of you end up sitting in my office because you treat your wife just like you treat one of the other guys, and that doesn't work too well. Amen. All right. Good. <laughs> like that's us. That, that's how we work. Because God has made different roles for male and female, and it's not one is less than the other, one is greater than the other, is they are complementing each other. I can't do what I do if I don't have her. I have weaknesses where she has strengths and they fill it up. Right? God has made them to be complementing to lifting up of one another. But here's what it is saying. There will never be a time again where anyone is excluded from the worship of God and made to stand at a distance and watch. <laughs> I don't think we're thinking about that in context. Not the context of the New Testament, the context of your life, the context of your sin, the context of your failing. The context of the times in your life where you said, God, I don't care what you say. I don't care what, what your word has to say for me. I'm going to do things my way. And in effect, you give the finger to God and you say, I'm going to do it my way. And God doesn't send a lightning bolt and explode you. He lets you go long enough until you crash and you turn to him and you cry out to him and you repent and he forgives you. And rather than saying, but you did this and so forever you will stand there and watch because of your sin and your shame. That was nailed to the cross and there will never be a time where anyone stands at a distance and has to watch. You are welcomed into the family of God. That's good news. That's Christ exalting news. That was, the, that was the intention of the temple, but Jesus looks and says, you haven't done that. You've made it a den of robbers. Mark tells us in real general terms that he drove out those who sold and those who bought. So those who were selling, he calls robbers. Those who bought were just kind of in the way. By the way, those who bought were people coming to worship. That was you and me. We're coming. Uh, we had to get our sacrifice there. You can't bring your own because it hasn't been, it's not kosher, right? So we got we to gotta get our sacrifice there. And the whole process of doing that, I'm trampling on the court of the Gentiles. They were just in the way. And Jesus is pushing them out of the way. And Jesus is removing those who were selling. He calls the, those who were selling robbers. He doesn't call them thieves, Thieves are, are people who steal stuff. Thieves are, are pickpockets. They, they kind of do it while you're not looking. The word he uses for robber in the Greek is the word for highwayman or bandit. 
It's the person who gets in front of you. This isn't outside of your notice where you don't see. He gets in front of you. He threatens you with violence and takes what you have. And Jesus says, that's what you're doing to my people. That's what you have made my house. Because the people were trapped. There was no other way. There was no other way to worship God. You had to get the sacrifices there. You had to get it with their money or you are excluded. You are trapped in that position. Now, I've never been to a temple where it's like that. But I've been to a movie theater. Right? Where you get in there and you pay something stupid for a 46-cent bucket of popcorn and that's counting the plastic that goes into the bucket, right? You tracking with me? Uh, because they have you. You're not allowed to bring anything else in. And they have you. You are their prisoner and they are robbing you. Uh, just a, a quick thought here. Just make this connection a little bit. Uh, you are paying, every time you buy popcorn at a movie theater, 1,200% more than that popcorn is worth. Good investment. And just in case you don't think this is evil, this is evil, okay? Uh, back in 1929 when they started selling popcorn in the theaters, and I, I know there's some of you, you're crazy, you're, you're nutso. You will be driving down the road and you will stop at a movie theater just to buy their popcorn. I'm not saying Chuck's name. I wouldn't throw him under the bus. You know, there's people, there's people who do that. Uh, in 1929, when they started selling popcorn to today, this is going to prove to you that it's evil, to today, if you count for inflation... Are you ready for this? The cost of popcorn has gone up 666%. Yeah, yeah. It's demonic. That's right. It's <laughs> Extra butter, please. It's interesting that, that in this, this whole thing, the only thing Marx mentions is those who sold pigeons. Doesn't that seem weird? Like, we, we think about the Jewish sacrifice being a lamb, or something else. And, and he mentions that, in fact, it, it says he kicked over their seats. Were they still sitting on him? Like, it, was, was this the prank thing where you kick it out and they wipe out on the ground? Like, what did it look like that Jesus kicks over the seats of those who are selling pigeons? Why did he pick on them? Well, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 7 says this. And it, it's Leviticus giving the law of how the sacrifices were to happen. It says, if they can't afford a lamb... Then he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for the sin offering and one for the burnt offering. This was the offering of the poor. This is those who couldn't afford anything more. This is literally the best that we can do. And Jesus says there's something so crooked about what you're doing. Not only are you preventing the Gentiles from coming, you're making it really hard for the poor people to come before God and worship him. Which is amazing when you think that Joseph and Mary, when they came to the temple, Jesus was eight days old, for him to be presented before the Lord, but for him to be circumcised, to make their offering, in keeping with the law, Luke 2, verse 24 says, And they offered a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Joseph and Mary were poor. Jesus didn't grow up in some privileged house where he had all of these 
extra things added to his life, and so he, he thought he was better than everybody else. He knew exactly what it was to grow up in need. And he says, I'm not, I'm not tolerating this. The poor are being robbed. The Gentiles are being trampled. And Jesus says this entire system is broken. And for this, the chief priests and the scribes would hear of it. It's all happening. Like he's chasing people out of this gigantic court of the Gentiles. He's making this big stir. And they're going to look for a way to destroy him. The problem is Jesus is standing and teaching and the people are looking at him. They're listening to him. And how do we take him without starting a riot? So look at verse 19 with me. When evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning and saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, right, this isn't anything super special. It was the yes, yesterday, okay? <laughs> Peter remembered all the way back to yesterday. Wow, well done, Peter. And says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here because this is really self-evident, but they go home in the dark, okay? When evening comes, they make the two-mile walk back to Bethany, probably past this tree, but it's dark and they can't see it. The next morning, they're making the same return journey to Jerusalem, and they see this same tree is withered in one day. This is a supernatural thing that has happened enough where Peter takes notice and says, that's weird. Like, you cursed that tree yesterday, and it's dead today. The reason Jesus is giving this example of the withered tree is because all of their hope and their faith, in fact, for a Jewish man, if he was going to swear by something, they wanted to be really careful about taking God's name. They didn't want to use God's name in vain, so they would... It, it, man, it, it had to be really over the top before they would swear by heaven. But a lot of times they would pledge things by the temple, by something that's the center of worship, that is immovable. This is where our hope lies, that in this system is my hope, this sacrificial system. And Jesus says that time is over. It's dead in one day. John the Baptist had this exact same mission before, or message before Jesus' mission ever began. In Matthew 3, verse 10, he says to the Pharisees, these same, these same religious leaders, he said, who told you to repent? Go and bear fruit in repentance. Don't, don't just give lip service to it and then keep living your life the way you want to. Because your system isn't working. In Matthew 3, verse 10, he says, the axe is already at the root. This tree is withering down to the roots and the axe is waiting above it. Back in Hosea verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 16, it says, Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered and they yield no fruit. Man, this is easy for us because we didn't grow up in this system. We haven't grown up with 2,000 years of tradition. Two th that's about how long it had been. 2,000 years of going to this magnificent building with all this magnificent ceremony. I mean, they had ceremony down. All of the, the vestments that they wore, all the robes that they wore, all the liturgy that they said, all of these things that pointed to this is how sin is taken away. They had 2,000 years of trust and tradition. And Jesus says in one day, it's over. It looks really good, but there's no fruit. If you and I would have gone to the Jewish temple, we would have been impressed 
They did a good job. In fact, Josephus, uh, that same Jewish historian, says that in AD 66, when the temple was completed, about 30 years later, they sacrificed over 255,000 lambs in one day. They had a system that worked pretty well. You ever been to a barbecue with 255,000, like, roasted? I don't even know what that smelled like. Like, Jerusalem smelled good that day. It looked good on the outside, but it was dead. Look back at your Bible, verse 22. Jesus answers them. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he has says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I always think every time I've ever read this in the past, I thought this is the most absurd place to stick this charismatic verse. This understanding of how how God works in relation to prayer it just doesn't even make sense with the temple and the fig tree. So we're going to try and real quickly in the time that we have left unravel that a little bit. Jesus is saying there is a true temple. He's pointed to the dead tree. And then from the dead tree, he points to the temple with all of its problems. And now he's pointing back to there is a true temple. There is a true church. It is going to be found in Christ and in the individuals who are themselves a temple of the Holy Spirit. But he says this tree is dead. This church that you've been going to is dead. All of the external things that you've been doing to try and earn your salvation have not earned a single thing. It's dead. And it's almost bizarre that he points to that and instantly he answers their question about the temple by saying, have faith in God. He doesn't explain what he's saying about the temple. He says, your faith is in the wrong place. You're, you're putting your faith in, in a temple, in a man-made system, in, in some church, in the way that they do things. Put your faith in God. Not temple worship, for Jesus is the new center. James Edwards again says, Mark's following the fig tree and temple sandwich, I love that he calls it that, calls to faith and signifies that Jesus and not the temple is the new object of faith. I would actually disagree with his word new. I think Jesus was the original object of faith. That all throughout the Old Testament, all of those things that were shadows of things before are pointing to Jesus. Right? Y'all look a little sleepy. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. This is incredible stuff here. Hebrews chapter 10. There's no slide for this, so if you want to see it, you're going to have to read it out of the Bible. Because everything that God has spoken so specifically about how he was to be worshipped, how the sacrifices were to happen, what the priests were to do, what they were to say, what the people were to do, what they were to say, how the temple was be constructed, it was all pointing forward. Not to some new version of the temple, but to Christ who was the true temple. Hebrews chapter 10 Beginning in verse 1, we're going to read just a big old chunk of this here. Verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Everything that you could see physically, the writer of the Hebrews says, was just a shadow. That wasn't real. 
There was something real that was causing a shadow. But all, of, all the things you saw in the sacrifice and the temple, all these, all these rituals were a shadow. It, ne- it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder. These sacrifices were a reminder. Rather than removing sin, they were reminding you of your sin. The reminder of sins every year. Verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That is jarring to a Jewish man. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's all we've had for 2,000 years. It is impossible for that system to take away sin. Are you hearing that? It's impossible. We should know that because in the church nowadays, what we want to do is go back and recreate ways where we can atone for our sin. It's impossible for man-made efforts to take away sin. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body You have prepared for me, God. You have made me into your sacrifice. Verse 6, In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, this is verse 7, I have come to do your will, O God. Whose will? God's will. The removal of sin, God's will. The, The sacrificial system being replaced by the sacrifice of Christ, God's will. God's will. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. All those things that were written about the sacrifices and the temple and this whole system were pointing forward to Jesus, who would be that. Verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings. That, that is a crazy sentence because that is the only way that people have been cleansed, by the way, for 2,000 years. And he says God took no pleasure in that. Can you imagine after 2,000 years of being a church at Eden Worship Center if God said, I take no pleasure in the way you've worshipped me here? I can't. (laughs) That's horrifying. No pleasure in those offerings and the burnt offerings and the sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. I told you to do it, but I'm not taking pleasure in it because they're pointing to something else. Verse 9, and he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. The first order, Jesus is doing away with the second order, is being established in him, verse 10, and by that will, by whose will? God's will, being expressed through Christ, we have been sanctified. We've been made holy. You you know what the sacrifice did every year? They removed the guilt for that year. The writer of the Hebrews is arguing that when Christ sanctifies, if that one would have worked, they would have never needed again because this is once for all. He says, in this sacrifice, by God's will, you have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his services, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered For all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. He doesn't keep doing it day after day after day. He sat down 
waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering, you notice how many times he's made this singular in here? For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So he has sanctified us, he has justified us, and we are continuing to be sanctified. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their lawless deeds no more. The blood of bulls and goats and sheep and pigeons is powerless to remove sin. But when Jesus goes to the cross on your behalf, God says, I will remember your sin no more. Verse 18 says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. It's finished. The totality of your offense before a holy God has been punished in Jesus Christ. And you are free from that. It means every accusation that gets leveled against you is an unjust accusation. Are you guilty? Yes, absolutely. But has that been paid? Yes, fully in Christ. The Jewish understanding of how to worship God was about to be fundamentally changed after 2,000 years. And it meant that the apostles and, and this new church would face intense persecution. They were going to pay for this good news with their life. Jesus starts with 12 disciples, and one of them is a traitor. So now he's down to 11 to spread this to a whole world, and it would seem like a mountain of opposition against them. And he says, stop putting your hope in a building. Stop putting your hope in centuries of tradition. Stop putting your hope in strength in numbers, and start believing in a God who has the power to move mountains. We're almost done. Stick with me here. That's why he says, believe. When you pray about these things, when you as this new church, as, as you're beginning, remember the context here is this beginning of a different church, a, a different style of worship. He says, you're going to face mountains. And if you pray in such a way that you believe that you've already received it, knowing that God says, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. You can pray boldly, you can live boldly, and you can die boldly for the gospel. The context of verse 23 and 24 here may seem strange because most of us have only heard this in an exclusively pulled out of context thing about what charismatic prayer is supposed to look like. And I, I, I say they were really close because in the context of Jesus commissioning as he does in Matthew chapter 28, therefore go and make disciples. This is another great commissioning. He's saying, I'm tearing down this temple. I'm building a new church. Now go. And as you go, I want you to pray as if God is tearing down mountains in front of you as he's opening countries to the gospel that have been closed for thousands of years and people have died and never heard the name of Jesus. I want you to live and preach and die in a way that believes that I'll build my church. It's a different temple. It's in the body of Jesus Christ. That's a different kind of boldness, church. And he says, you can pray as if it's already happened because that's my will. That the gospel be proclaimed. Who's he speaking to here? If we just want to reclaim the context here, he's speaking to disciples who are going to give their lives for this gospel. What's he talking about? He's, he's talking about replacing the temple, the sacrificial system, 
with the once for all sufficient sacrifice of Christ, who is our Lamb, who is our great high priest, who is our access to the holy place. There's no more walls separating us from the living God. This is a great commission to the church to live as if we have a God who is actively alive in this world. There's so many stories of this that we could look at, but just, just one of them briefly as we close is a guy, many of you have probably heard his name before, uh, Adoranam Judson. He was a missionary in Burma, and he and his wife Anne were some of the very first missionaries to ever be sent out from America. There were missionaries from other places in the world, some of the first missionaries to be sent from America. And on the, on the trip from America overseas, he, he devotes himself to studying uh, how salvation happens and what the purpose of baptism is. And by the end, he, he ends up believing in believer's baptism. He's a Baptist by the time he gets off the boat, uh, believes in, in confessional uh, baptism. And so he goes to India where they kick him out. Imagine, you know, saying, God, we want to give everything that we have, and we're going to go to this place that we believe you called us to go, and they get there, and they say, no, the door is closed. And so he goes to Burma, which didn't have a closed door. It just had no door. there, There was just nothing there, and so he's going to spend years. In fact, it, it will be three years uh, that go by, and someone is going to ask him about success in missions. Three years, okay? You leave America, you and your wife, you go to another part of the world, and you spend three years in a mission, and they asked him what evidence he had of ultimate success, and he replies this, as much as there is a God who will fulfill his promises. You know what they had as far as success at that point? Nothing. Because it would be six years before they had their first convert. Six years. And three years in, with no response that they could measure, he says, I have full assurance of success because there is a God in heaven who wants us to share his gospel. After 12 years, they have 18 converts. This doesn't fit into our paradigm of mass evangelism and huge meetings and thousands of people being swept into the king. You know, as if this is the model when church planting in tiny little places, sharing the gospel one-on-one, that's how you and I came to Christ, right? That's how you and I grew in Christ. That's how the nations will come to Christ. After 12 years, they have 18 converts. But in that time, he has written a grammar of their language, and he's halfway through translating the New Testament into their language. He's investing because he believes there's a God in heaven. Not too long after that, there'd be a civil war in Burma and he would be arrested because he's preaching the gospel. Track with me here. We packed up everything as a young family. We got on a boat. We went to the other side of the world. They didn't want us there. We went someplace else. There's nothing happening. We're not seeing hardly anybody get saved. We've been there 12 years. We have 18 converts, and now he's arrested. You have a church of less than 20 people, and he's arrested. He's arrested. He's put in a prison where it's infested with rats, and if that wasn't bad enough, one of their favorite things to do is hang him up by his feet, because this was a torture prison, hang him up by his feet with just his head touching the ground. So that when he gets released from prison 20 months later, he's racked with all of these physical problems. And after 20 months of waiting, wives, 
Anne alone is, she's petitioning, she's continuing the mission, trying to get him out of jail, and he gets out of jail, and in a very, very brief time, she dies along with their third child. The third child died within hours of her. What does he say? God, this was worthless. God, this was a waste of my life. No, like Jesus said, pray as if you've already received it. We can preach boldly, we can live boldly, we can die boldly. He would spend 37 years in that mission in Burma before getting a rather serious lung infection at the age of 61. And a doctor would tell him, to cure this, you need to get on a boat and spend some time at sea because the the sea air is going to clear that up. right? Doctors stunk back then too because he gets on a boat and he dies at sea. He spent 37 years in faithful, hard mission. And he has a burial at sea. That means they just dump his body in the ocean. It's gone. You you can't find his, his body. You can't go to his grave today. But after all of that time, he actually had accomplished some things. When Judson began his mission in Burma, his goal was to translate the Bible and to found a church with at least 100 members. That was his goal. That was the goal that he wrote down. By the time of his death, he had translated the Bible as well, and he'd already written the the grammar for it, as well as a half-completed Burmese to English dictionary, which, by the way, would open the door for every missionary that came after, we can now speak your language. And he'd planted 100 churches, and there were 8,000 believers because of what he did. Every year in that area, in fact, Myanmar uh, now is the third largest population of Baptists in the world behind the United States and India. Because of him, because he lived boldly, he prayed boldly, and he died boldly, and every day they have a Judson Day where they celebrate the day that he landed in their nation. Because there's a God who has said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ's commitment to building his church is so sure that we can risk everything for the sake of the gospel. That we can work diligently, we can preach boldly, and if necessary, we can die anonymously. We're not talking about the the glorious death, like running into the face of the firing enemy. We're talking about working hard and seeing what looks like no results, and then we die in obscurity knowing that he will accomplish the goal that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world, to every ethnic group, and then the end will come. But listen to me. Jesus tells us right here, being the church isn't just about those mountaintop experiences. He says that you're going to be able to to experience things, to pray things that you've never had before. And then he throws this little thing right at the end. He says, when you stand praying, if somebody has something against you, if you have something against somebody else, forgive. Just as God has forgiven you. If you haven't figured this out yet, being part of the church means being part of the nitty-gritty, up-close, personal, vulnerable where people at Eden Worship Center, I'm not talking about other churches, I'm talking about right here. People here will disappoint you, they will let you down, they will hurt you, and some of it is unintentional, some of it will be intentional, they will sin against you. 
In our modern day, we say, I don't want to be around those people. I'm going somewhere else. And Jesus says, my gospel, my plan for the church is bigger than that. So as you're praying for me to do bold things in this earth, forgive. That's the model that we've been given with each other. In the midst of our spiritual mountaintops, forgive. Just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Worship team, if you guys would come. I wanted to land us just a little bit back from that high call because we, be, we can be inspired by the stories. And, and, and my heart is moved when I, I hear the stories of those who boldly took the gospel into places that they knew would cost them their life. Many of those missionaries going out packed everything they had into their own coffin because they said, I'm not coming home. That's my commitment to the gospel. We can be inspired to that, but I think we need to take a step back and realize in the midst of the church where we live right now, there can be hurts. There can be offenses. There, there can be people who have said things or even, even looked at you in such a way where you were offended. And I want to call you by the word of God this morning, to forgive. I want to call you not to live in that offense, to live in that hurt, but to choose the healing power of Christ over our own offense. I actually think this ties in beautifully. We're going to be taking communion together in just a minute. It, such a beautiful connection that our, our joining together, our, our union, our communion together, it's not because of the great things that you have accomplished. It's not because of the great holiness that you have earned for yourself. That was the old temple. We've been joined because we are in Christ and he is writing within us a new nature. That, that means that we, we still have a sinful nature. We still have a sinful tendency and we hurt each other. And Rather than giving up Oh, how sad. How, how sad, church, when we look at the offense of someone who is still struggling to be sanctified, and we not only reject them, we reject the church and Christ on their behalf. That is a blasphemous offense, and Jesus says, forgive. So let's stand to our feet, and I, I want to give us a second to just search our heart. We believe in a, a believer's communion which means that you don't have to be a member of our church to take communion with us. Because communion isn't just those who are part of our church. It's those who have been joined to his church, those who have been joined in Christ. It's those who are faithfully seeking to live out what it means to be a Christian, to put to death the sinful nature and to put on Christ. And so if that's you, I, I would welcome you to come. We have wine over here. There's grape juice over here as your conscience leads you. We're going to sing together in just a second. You can start from the front and make your way back to your place, and then we'll take the elements together in just a little bit. But that, man, that challenge, if you have not trusted, if you have not trusted in Christ for your salvation, if you have, if you have this reservation like, I, I really believe in God, but I, I reject most of what his word says, I would beg you this morning, don't come. Don't come and do what the Bible describes as eating and drinking condemnation on yourself. Because every time that we take this together, we proclaim his death until he comes. We proclaim the new covenant and not the old covenant. Instead of coming, stay right where you are 
and do some business with God. Say, God, would you save me? Would you reach down in your mercy? So before we take this, I want us to just quiet our hearts before the Lord for just a moment and pray with the psalmist. God, search me and know me. God already knows. It's us who don't know. God, see if there's any wicked way within me. Let's confess that before him. Let's allow him by his spirit to cleanse that from us. And then let's rejoice together. That not by our merit, not by what we have done, but by Christ, our names have been written in the book of life. Let's take just a moment and quiet ourselves before the Lord.